This is not a book about crimes. That's not true. Oh, really? Yeah, where are the crimes? Did I miss the crimes? The whole there's, thing there's is crimes. about there's, the there's giant crime that is our oh, social, political, and economic system. It's not about us doing crimes in a fun way, though. All right, here are the... Qu- okay, I've got the questions. <laughs> Justify yourself is the first question. All right. <laughs> so we're going to... All right. I hate that. Nathan wrote a book, you guys. All right. Why you should be a socialist. Hello, bird feed, and welcome to another bonus episode of the Current Affairs Podcast. I am your legal editor, Or Nimni, and I am here with our amazing managing and amusement editor, two editors in one person, Lyda Gold. Hello, Lyda. Hi. Hi. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm apparently off-putting, but I'm good. Uh. You know, I'm a lot of we all are. I'm, I'm twice uh, as many persons. That's why you're two editors. Two editors. Because you are twice as many people exactly. as a normal person. That's about right. One of those people isn't off-putting. I love the amusements editor. The managing editor, on the <laughs> other hand. Somebody <laughs> gets mad because the magazine is two weeks late because somebody left her his book tour without finishing the fucking layouts. The fonts are too tiny. The magazine's too late. Jesus. As you can hear, dear listeners, <laughs> we are also joined by a third person. But it is not who you might think, which is Nathan J. Robinson, editor-in-chief himself. It is, in fact, Nathan J. Robinson, author of Why You Should Be a Socialist, out recently from All Points Books. An imprint that immediately became defunct after publishing. <laughs> I was going to say, that's not, I don't think that exists. Uh, it existed for a while, but there is no more All Points books. From St. Martin's Press, I believe. St. Martin's Press. Nathan is the editor of Current Affairs magazine. He is the person that is managed by Light of Gold, hence the off-puttingness. <laughs> he is also the author of a wonderful new book, Why You Should Be a Socialist, and that is what we are going to be talking about tonight. Why one should be a socialist, why one should read the book, and some of the lessons that are from this book. Nathan, thank you for joining us on the program. It's a privilege to be with you, Oren Nimney. Are you an avid reader of current affairs? No, I, I don't have time for it myself. Uh, I, I hear it's all right. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I've been Not reading much it for from magazines. 10, 20 years. But, I've seen know. it on friends' coffee tables, and the, it, it makes them look intelligent, though. So I would recommend getting a subscription, if only to do that. <laughs> Looking intelligent is half the battle. 90% of the battle. Oh, completely, 90%. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I have spent most of my life just trying to look intelligent to be taken seriously. That's well, then why aren't the you a subscriber to Current Affairs? If you want to look intelligent, subscribe to the magazine. And and buy, buy the book, And right? buy the book. Why? Well, we'll figure that out. Okay. We're going to well, figure we that out. the case okay. yet. Yeah. So, Nathan. Oh, God. I've been dreading this. <laughs> you should have been dreading this because I'm going to start with the softness the, the velvet, and then, and then I'm going to, to be mean. I have a list of questions, but first I want to say that I really enjoyed the book. Thank you. It was lovely. It's extremely well written. Well, it's compelling. mostly about you. Yeah, well, that's why I liked it. I like things <laughs> that are about me. It's, it's a series of conversations that we've had over the years, and it made me feel very warm towards you. I also have a bunch of back audible credits, and so I, I purchased the audiobook. <laughs> and Did you? Have you tried listening to, to it yet? Read the book and it was excellent you're very good at reading books you have a lot of inflection about oh, yeah. the thing and, and, you know in the appropriate places so I, I think i saw a reviewer say something like you were very passionate on the recording and i, I agree with that Indeed so I, I will say that it's very good it is very well written and it made me feel both very happy and very sad about the things that are wrong in this world now 
onto the seriousness. So that was the velvet. Now that we get the, the iron your, hand your beneath the velvet glove. Beneath the velvet glove. Nathan. So kinky. So my first question <laughs> that I have on my list is justify yourself. That's not a question. By which I mean... That's a demand. In all the other interviews that I've read of you on this book, people have asked, okay, so why should I be a socialist? Why should I get this book, etc.? That's not the question that I have. The question that I have is, you write for a magazine where most of your articles are about really particular topics. There's a whole host of things that you can do with your time. Why this book? Why now? Why do you think a book is sort of the most compelling vehicle? If your goal is to convince people to be a socialist, why do you think this was a good step to take on that road of convincing people? Yeah, and I don't know that it is. I'm just doing the best thing that I know how to do. And Current Affairs, in many ways, has been an effort to... So, to give people a little background, I originally thought I wanted to be a lawyer, like you, and I spent about two days as a lawyer. You and I took a case together. We and won I've, that case. Which what we won. What was the case? Can I know? There's a man who burned a flag... Allegedly. Allegedly. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Allegedly. <laughs> Shit, I'm a terrible lawyer. <laughs> Burned a flag, and he was. And we. I got to make a very staunch First Amendment argument, and then the judge said, "Yes, but also it wasn't his flag." <laughs> so you can burn your own flag under the First okay. Amendment, but you can't burn anyone else's so flag. It has to be a flag that you purchased. That's what they said. That's what they said, but that's not what we said, and we won. We okay. said the right to burn a flag means the right to burn anybody's flag you like. Does that extend to other property or just flags? Just flags. Okay. Well, we were we were setting up. You anyway. know. <laughs> so anyway, the law was not for me. I, I mean, I, I found what, what you have found. I mean, you actually have managed to do a lot of good through the law and save some people's lives. Warren's an actual hero, you guys. He's an actual, actual immigration lawyer hero. But, you know, you find, if you are a person who is very discontented with the world and has very strong beliefs that there are features of it that need to be different and you want to alter them through the process of social change, you rapidly find that social change is extremely difficult, that there isn't an obvious organization that you join, which is, you know, there's no, oh, I'll go and join the the revolutionary organization. And a lot of organizations that you do join are extremely disappointing. People who have worked for nonprofits and they find that they're the nonprofits that they work at do very little and reproduce some of the problems that they're supposed to solve. And I found this as I went to work. And, and also, even when you are doing good work, you, do a, you can only have a very limited impact. So I went to work at the New Orleans Public Defender's Office, and it was clear that like you were just you spent all of your day just desperately trying to keep people out of jail and failing. And the people who worked there, if you didn't burn out within a few years, were really miserable. And then I went to go do, at the ACLU, some impact litigation. And I found that the impact litigation, which is supposed to have, you suppose they were suing prisons over prison conditions. And these were class action lawsuits that would sometimes drag out for 25 years. Like, they had one where, like, the judge was 90 and he wanted to end the case, but it would never end. <laughs> it's Dickensian. Oh my yeah. god. It, it's, it's bad. It's bad! And then, of course, I went to grad school because I went, ah, oh, well, I could be a public intellectual and I can influence the discourse. But as everyone finds out in grad school, they think they're going to do meaningful scholarship, but then they're pressured to do scholarship that they don't find meaningful and they come to hate their work and they realize that no one's going to read it. So I was very depressed in graduate school. For the first time in my life, I was really seriously depressed. So, Oren, you and I, we lived together at that point. 
We did. It was lovely. I miss you. It was deeply lovely, and I miss living with you. Some of the best years of my life. But I was also miserable. (laughs) And I happened to look at magazines and political media and realize that much of it was very bad. And you and I sort of realized that we could do better and, and, and that making a magazine was very possible. And it seemed like it might be something that gives you a lot of bang for your buck in terms of when you write a magazine and you put ideas in people's heads, you're kind of doing telepathy. I tend to think that the media has a real serious impact. I mean, you see this in in Britain, especially, where the media just transmits poisonous talking points into people's heads, and then they repeat them endlessly. You know, Fox News has been very, very effective in building the conservative political project. Yeah, I mean, you've cited in the book, right? I think there's a section where you cite that, that study where even the presence of Fox News in a town can have a demonstrable effect yeah. on the, the politics of the town and shift it rightward. Yeah, there have been studies suggesting that that can happen. I don't know how strong they are, but they do, you know, they do indicate that it, you know, Fox does turn people rightward. And that reading op-eds, just reading an op-ed, makes you more likely to agree with the underlying position. Uh, persuasion mm-hmm. works. Everything people, Every idea people get, they get because they've heard of it somewhere. We think of very few things alone ourselves knowledge is communal so and i saw what jacobin was doing and they were doing great work and so but i you know we do something slightly different than jacobin i try and write for more of a non-left audience presenting left positions and it seemed like something that i could do that used my skills and that might be effective that might change minds that might help people understand left politics and it seemed to fill a gap where i thought there needed to be more political writing from a left perspective that was designed to be persuasive and compelling again i don't know whether it works (laughs) we know that we have some readers who tell us that they've (laughs) shifted their politics from reading current affairs but- well, yeah, no, and I love when we get those messages because, yeah, I mean, one, it's encouraging, but two, it confirms the premise that I think underlies the magazine and also underlies the book. And you're very explicit about this in the book, right, where you say there's a defeatist attitude to the both liberal and conservative consensus position that is people's political ideologies are fixed, they're unchangeable, and really that persuasion doesn't exist. And I think what it, it sounds like you're describing is the opposite view that you don't really know whether people are persuadable, but you kind of think that they are. And even if they're not, it's pretty, you pretty much got to, got to go out there and, and try to persuade people. You know, I mean, that's, that's a good premise to start from and, and a good reason to write the book. I kind of want to talk, ask about the book in the litany of things that you've written. Litany. Yeah, it's true. It's a litany. Yeah. So, so if you look at your earlier work. Oh yes. The early, uh, the, early the, the early Robinson. I'm a fan of the young Robinson as opposed to the old Robinson. The young Robinson <laughs> versus the later Robinson. Things like Super Predator and Anatomy of a Monstrosity, your book about Clinton and your book about Trump, respectively, are sort of more descriptive projects, right? You're trying to describe basically what was going on in politics during that time and make some kind of overarching claims about weaving them together. Why you should be a socialist is framed a little bit differently. And framed a little bit differently than a lot of your stuff where you're sort of just describing things on the ground. This is like prescriptive. Like, you should be a socialist and I'm going to tell you why. And I wanted to ask you if you feel like you're doing something different with this book than you've done with your previous books, or if you think it's sort of part of a long like it's actually quite similar even though it's framed differently this is a very npr question i like this i, I, I wanted to take gross. on an npr persona but the descriptive this is the prescriptive <laughs> well you know the early books were just me taking an intolerable powerful white man 
and just explaining why he sucks. A service to humanity. So much of my work is taking an intolerable white man and explaining why he sucks. Jordan Peterson, Ben Shapiro, Donald Trump, Bill Clinton, etc. You know, Tucker Carlson, all these people. I have found that I want to have an answer to the question, well, okay, it's easy to tear down, but then what do you believe? What would you do? You know, what's the alternative? And I think that's a really, really important part of what you have to do if you if you want to even persuade people to accept your criticisms. Because actually, when people say it's easy to be a critic, it's true. It's really easy to criticize anything. And I, in fact, wrote five fake <laughs> reviews of my own book, partly in order to illustrate how easy it will be for people to call it shit and to insult it, because you can do that with anything. And I feel like the work I did previously was kind of easy in some ways. I think I was right about those guys. And I think the important things to say. But I do think one of the objections that many of us on the left have to like the contemporary liberals is that they define themselves in opposition to, say, Donald Trump. You know, it's all about why Donald Trump is terrible and not there's no clear philosophy of what your world would look like and, you know, why should we join your movement and what is it for? So in this book, I kind of wanted to answer the difficult questions, right? The difficult questions are, well, what do you stand for? Take your abstract, you say the words socialism and capitalism a lot. What do you, what do you mean by those things? And I had to figure out those things because I think a lot of us don't necessarily want to think about the hard questions. Like, what exactly do we mean by terms we use all the time? What exactly do we stand for? What is our vision? How do we want to get there? And so I don't think I necessarily completely succeeded, but this was my effort to say, okay, well, I'm not afraid of the, the difficult questions. In that trajectory, you start the book by talking about all of the things that are bad. Yes. Right? All the things that are bad in the world and all the things that are intolerable. And that, and you sort of frame part of your vision of socialism as someone that cannot accept the things that are awful in this world. You know, you talk about, both in the book and then in, and in other interviews, growing up in Florida in a segregated community and it, it being very, very hard to kind of grapple with. And so I want to hear a little bit about that. I want to hear about the moral outrage that starts that. But I also want to ask, you know, I can imagine that there's a lot of people that grow up in Sarasota now, in Sarasota when you were a child, in Sarasota when it was part of the Jim Crow South, that saw the same or similar segregation and didn't become socialists. And I kind of want to know about the outrage starting point and about the intolerable starting point that you talk about, but I also want to know why it's led to this version of solutions for you as opposed to, right? Like I could imagine seeing segregation and seeing like, being like, okay, well, I'm going to do some liberal solutions to that, or I'm going to do some, you know, market solutions to that. And And I want to know why you think it's gotten you where you are and why you think other people should do the same. Well, one of the reasons that you become a radical is in part because you feel such a strong sense of urgency. It's not just that like you feel that solutions being offered by more moderate political positions are inadequate. It's that you believe that they don't adequately appreciate just 
how revolting the situation before their eyes is. Yeah, so, I mean, I am from Florida, and Florida, from my perspective, was a very screwed-up place, right? I mean, I went to a fantastic public school, really one of the best public schools in the country, and it was, I think, 90-something percent white. And Sarasota is not 90-something percent white. And what Sarasota does is it takes all of the students who it believes have promise, and they do an IQ test. And if you pass oh the IQ test, you go to the gifted school. But we all know that IQ tests are racist, right? It's a racist way of, dis- of, of determining... Do you have a Charles Murray sound effect? Yeah. <laughs> and that struck me as really a thoroughly disturbing way and i it was a great school and i think one of the things about socialists is that like things that look very normal to other people or acceptable or that they reconcile themselves to look kind of really deeply upsetting to us right so you take something like amazon where amazon has massive customer satisfaction everyone loves amazon right it's one of the most popular it is still one of the most popular companies in the country like in terms of its like brand loyalty yet those of us who are on the left look at it and see a deeply troubling wrong exploitative institution because we see the labor that is under the surface so we dig underneath the surface so before we get to like whether there is a liberal solution to the problems that plague amazon or whether you need a more radical solution it is true that one of the things that characterizes socialists historically i talk about the in the book the ethic of solidarity which i define in eugene debs's terms of saying well there's a lower class i'm in it and while there's a soul in prison i am not free and there is an echo in Eugene Debs's While There Is a Soul in Prison, I Am Not Free of Ursula Le Guin's The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas. It's a story about this wonderful utopia where there's one child being tortured all the time to make it possible. And the While There Is a Soul in Prison, I Am Not Free is the person who says everything around me can look wonderful. It can look great. I mean, Florida's a tropical paradise in many ways. But if there's a soul in prison, then it's still a very, very fucked up world. And that is one of the points of that story. It is one of the points of what Eugene Debs says. And it's one of the reasons that Steven Pinker is an asshole and an idiot. <laughs> because he's like, oh, things are getting better. But that's irrelevant, right? The, the question is, is there a soul in prison? Is there, at the bottom, is there, is there some class of people that is suffering to make this all possible? To refer to that story, uh, to the ones who walk away from Omelas, everybody in the city at some point gets to go, like, you're required to go in see the child so they all know it's there which is an actual i think an actual kind of important difference between the way that our world is structured and and the way that that story is structured because a lot of the time people don't know that things are happening that bad things are happening they just i've had terrible conversations with with liberal family members who love amazon because it makes their lives very convenient and they'll get very upset with me when i bring up the workers because they either didn't know and don't want to know or it's just so horrifying for them to to, to even think about because it it makes you know that now they feel bad and they don't want to feel bad so it's easier for them not to know so is there an extent to which the book is by starting out with a lot of the things that are horrible it's a way of showing people that child that's in the middle of Omelas. Yeah, we're the opposite, right? Many, many efforts are taken to make sure that you never have to think about the screams. We put them behind closed doors, right? The prisons are off in the countryside. You'll never see them. You'll never run into them. The detention facilities. I I lived, you know, when I was in, in New Haven, Sparky and I lived, and on my morning commute between my house and the law school, which was like half a mile, there was a jail 
And I never noticed it for three years. And I was walking past the jail every day because there was no sign. <laughs> so we really lock up the pain and suffering. And that is one of the reasons that it's so important to open the workplace and talk about what happens in workplaces. What they want to do is point your attention to what happens in malls and go, look, it's just people buying things that they want. But what they don't want you to do is look at behind you know, the, the kitchens, right? Don't look in the kitchens. Just look at the restaurants. Look at all the things that people are eating. It's magic. It's coming from nowhere. Don't look in the fields. <laughs> Don't look in the detention facilities. And so, yes, when I wrote this book, I really want to start very, very basically which is assuming that people are pretty apolitical. They don't get what the fuss is all about. Why are leftists mad? That's how I started. Why be mad, right? If I live in relative comfort, oh yeah, my job's not great, but I live in relative comfort. My iPhone's amazing. I have enough to eat. Why be mad? And so it's a first effort is to say, okay, well, look, there are things that need to make you very, very uncomfortable because this is Omelas. <laughs> this, is, this is a place where you're not seeing a lot of things that if you saw them would really, really upset you when you start to think. So it's trying to get people to think. And before it gets to the theory of capitalism, trying to understand capitalism, socialism, it really is like getting people to be like morally disquieted by things. Just to circle back to the Pinker point, because I think this is also towards the why, you know, why are people mad and why should people be mad? One of my favorite phrases from the book is a description of socialists, that socialism evaluates the world differently. It's not the difference between what was and what is as far as whether things have gotten better, but what is and what is possible. I was wondering if you could flesh that out a little bit, both in sort of the terms of what you think that means and how that also connects to your vision of the importance of utopian thinking. Yeah. So a lot of people have come to me and wondered how they respond to the argument that the Cato Institute and the American Enterprise Institute and Steven Pinker all make, which is, well, look, over the last several hundred years, life expectancy has gone up. There are many fewer famines today. You know, poor people do have fridges and iPhones a lot of the time, right? You know, the average nutrition that people get, right? Yeah, there are plenty of problems, but look, things are getting better. Things get slowly better and better and better. And one of the important responses is, well, yeah, but that was true at every point and the injustices were still intolerable, right? You can say you can say to someone in a, a Detroit auto workers in 1930 who did the sit-down strike, or the Flint auto workers who did the sit-down strike, you can say, well, yeah, but in 1930, you know, you're so much better off than you would have been 200 years ago. Look at the life expectancy charts. Look, you have a, you know, your two-bedroom apartment instead of a one-bedroom. And why is that a bad argument? Or you could say, you know, you could say to black people in 1964, like, this is so much better. And why is that so obviously absurd in those times? And it's absurd because we don't measure things by whether they're better, because better than something horrendous is not good. Better is not good. You have to look at what justice is, what is possible, and that what socialists have always done is they... George Orwell has this phrase, the world is a raft sailing through space with enough provisions for all. And socialism is elementary 
common sense because it says, well, look, it is perfectly possible to give every single person not necessarily a happy life, because happiness is difficult to achieve, but at least a life of relative material comfort. We can do this. It's possible. And so every moment that we don't do it, it's outrageous. And in fact, one of the interesting responses to the Pinker argument is, even if the standard of living is steadily increasing slightly, the moral outrageousness of your society might also be simultaneously increasing. Because as your productive capacities increase, then you have less and less of an excuse for the exploitation and atrocities and, and in the, like, the fact that people are sleeping on the streets as mansions go from a thousand square feet to ten thousand square feet to a hundred thousand square feet, even if the people who are on the streets, like, have slightly better nutrition today than they did several decades ago, the moral outrageousness has gone up so, so much because you're squandering so many resources that you should be putting to other uses. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think that is really one of the, the striking things, right? Where you could imagine, oh, okay, people, like, it wouldn't be good if people were starving in feudal times. But you could sort of imagine, like, actually, maybe agriculture is just hard. But now we actually do have just enough food for people and people are just starving. I still want to pick apart a little bit how this leads us to socialism in particular, right? I think if you read section one, you do a very good job of breaking down all of the bad things that are going on in the world. But I could also imagine someone saying, why does that necessitate something like worker power or collective ownership or workplace democracy, right? I could imagine saying like, look, Nathan, I think you're right. I think it is awful that there are people that are homeless while there are 1,000 square foot mansions. What I think that means is, you know, we need to build some more public housing, probably, but not necessarily fundamentally realign power. And I, I want to ask you how you get people over that hump. Yeah, one of the reasons that socialists listen to, well, okay, well, we could just we could just solve the problem. We could just take some money from over here and put it over here, and then you know we you don't have to fundamentally change who owns what. You can just bring up the bottom without tearing down the top or what have you. But if you try it, what you will find is that there is an arrangement of power. So one of the things is we're quite cynical people because we understand that any shift in who has power is not welcomed at all by the powerful. And you what? won't get... They're not okay with that? They're not okay with it. I mean, you try try and attempt to introduce new public housing and just see the kind of vicious opposition you run into. You try and get, like, Amazon workers to have this... You know, Jeff Bezos will fight you to the death before he gives his workers even a modicum of dignity, right? And one of the reasons for it, right, is because people who are at the top and control such a vast amount of wealth wealth, have a very social Darwinist view of justice, which is to say that they believe that it is legitimate to grab as much as you can and keep it. And so that's why they're going to fight you, because they believe that that struggle with you constitutes almost the struggle for justice. You see this in a lot of free market writing. They say, well, the pursuit of self-interest The pure pursuit of self-interest is justified. That is what produces justice. And 
if you adopt that kind of philosophy, the end result is that you should resist really any effort to... So this is why the wealthy don't want their taxes raised a penny for the most part, or at least only the bare minimum necessary to stave off a social revolution, right? This is also kind of why people like Trump... Like I was just, I was just thinking about his defense of this horrible psychopathic war criminal, Edward Gallagher. On the surface, that doesn't really seem like it has much to do with capitalism, because it's like he's just a, a soldier. You know, you can say, well, soldiers defend the islands of capital. But the, the point is that why will he, he never admit, no matter how many Navy SEALs testify against this guy, that maybe he's a bad guy. And one of the reasons is because he's by definition not a bad guy in the Trump social Darwinist view of justice, which is that he's a winner. If you kill as many people as possible, you're more powerful. You're a winner. If people he complain again. Numbers. His numbers got higher. He maximized, yeah. <laughs> and so there's this real disturbing philosophy among those who are in control of a lot of society's resources that says that basically... People deserve their fates. And so that's why they're going to fight you. And you're going to find that they are not willing to work with you. They are not willing to have bipartisan compromises where we can all agree that, you know, isn't it nice to have everyone should agree that food stamps are fine, for example. Like, why do the Republicans want to take away food stamps? Why do they want to drug test welfare assistance? Why do they care? It doesn't even affect their lives even a little bit. So you'd think if you were a sort of person who believed in the goodness, relative goodness of people, you'd be like, why are they fighting this? Well, one reason they fight it is because their fundamental philosophy is social Darwinism. And until you crush that, and until you get out of them out of power, it's going to be an endless struggle with them. They're going to try and destroy it. You get a welfare state, they're going to try and destroy it, and they're not going to rest until they destroy it. So what do we do? How do we get rid of them? Without guillotines, which you do not advocate in your book. <laughs> That's the real question, right? Your question is really, so you're saying that guillotines are fine? Yeah, I, I hear that's what you're saying. Uh, last resort. <laughs> well, uh, your framing of socialism in the book is the socialists that I love. So they're the, not the guillotine socialists, right? They're Robert Owen, they're Helen Keller, they're Albert Einstein, they're Bertrand Russell, they're Leo Tolstoy, Bakunin, Kropotkin. They're not, they're not Stalin. Eh, Tolstoy's a little different. Christian anarchist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. However, if you read some of Helen Keller's writings about capitalists, I feel as if she might have guillotined a few industrialists if she could have gotten her hands on Yeah, Helen Keller wants to guillotine some people, actually. <laughs> Would she have been wrong? Who's going to tell Helen Keller she's wrong? <laughs> well, the New York Times tells Helen Keller. What are the interesting what things? What was it, like, the Brooklyn this? Eagle? or The, the Brooklyn yeah. Eagle newspaper. Uh, this is great... still around, by the way. Oh, is huh. it? Yeah. And I have they apologized know. to Helen Keller yet? <laughs> I do yet? not know. I doubt it. So there's this great, there's some great quotes in the uh, book from Helen Keller, who's a radical socialist, where she's talking about how, like, basically all of these liberals fawned over her when she was this great success story of the, you know, the blind and deaf girl who learned to read and, you know, and, and communicate. And they all fawned over her, and then they all found out she was a socialist, and they either stopped returning her telegrams, or they told her that it was, a, you know, oh, well, her socialism is just because she's blind and deaf, so clearly a blind and deaf person would be ignorant. And she says, well, it's interesting that, you know, you think I'm blind and deaf until I point out all of the hideous injustices in your world that I found out, and then you go, oh, it's because of she, she's blind and deaf. She's really, really insulted. She's very angry. <laughs> As she motherfucking should be. No, I like that one of the things, one of my favorite parts of about the book is 
making people remember how many wonderful people in the world have been staunch socialists like Helen Keller, like Jack London. Jack London is like a very, so he just has a whole book on socialism. And it's also nice that it's linked very closely with the way that he talks about the environment. And and I like the way that in the book that you sort of link all of the problems, you know, they're not just sort of economic problems or class problems, but really that they're kind of interlinked problems. In one of the talks that you gave when you were doing the book release, one of the things that you talked about was that modern socialism is not satisfied solely with worker ownership, right? Because you could have worker-owned Exxon, and that still wouldn't be good. And I wondered if you could flesh that out a little bit more. The sort of panoply of values, and really the intersectional values that the modern socialism that you're talking about advocates. So the big question, of course, is what is socialism then? How do you define it? And, you know, my book is going to be slightly unsatisfactory to people in that respect, because I, you know, I define a set of values and objections that socialists have in common, but I say that it's a broad political tradition that has a lot of different meanings to people, you know, like democracy. You were very cute about it. You're like, it's hard to define, like love. Like love. (laughs) You know, but love is real. And socialism is real and meaningful to the people who've experienced it. So, yeah, the classic definition, of course, is worker ownership of the means of production. If you just want to talk about like what a socialist economy would be. But that's a kind of unsatisfactory definition because it gets us a lot of the way in that, like, you know, if you had real worker ownership you couldn't have an authoritarian government. It, it tells you why authoritarian governments aren't socialist. It's because they don't have worker ownership. If you don't have worker ownership, you're not a socialist economy. There's this conflation of worker ownership and government ownership, which is clever because it means that a dictatorship is by definition socialism. Uh, right, because any dictator is going to have more control over the economy. So you go, well, socialism is government control of the economy, therefore every dictator is automatically a socialist, no matter what ideology they profess. You know, Pinochet is a socialist. One of my favorites. You heard it here, folks. The more powerful you are, the more of a socialist you are, because socialism is just the state, state power. That's very unsatisfactory. So economic socialism, we have to go back to who makes the decisions. Are decisions made democratically? Are they made in a hierarchical workplace where people don't get to vote for their boss, where they're exploited and bullied and they fear being fired and they're surveilled all the time? There's a Wall Street Journal just has a report of new ways that employers are surveilling people. They can now track what time you wake up. Your computer, both at home and at work, will take pictures of you all day and send them to your boss. Lighter, you're making a face like that's bad. What? Tracks where in the building you are at any one point. That's cool. That's cool and horrible. Amazon, of course, fires people by robot now. Yeah. Which is that, like, if you don't meet your quotas, the robot will say you've dropped below. You know, firing people is upsetting, and you, you got to practice self-care. You know? <laughs> True. True. You can't. It's, it's, it's too hard to fire people Inflicted on the poor robot, though. Yeah. Well, and then the robot doesn't have feelings. So we know. Yet. And so if you're a socialist, you look at like the arrangement of that kind of workplace and you realize that it's a profound assault on human freedom because human freedom is not just the freedom to go to the mall and buy whichever phone cover you choose, but is like a meaningful capacity to do what you want with your life. 
But if we start to think about, well, what does what human freedom mean? What does human dignity mean? What does the philosophy of solidarity get us? It doesn't just get us to, like, you should have democratic workplaces. It gets us to feminism and anti-racism, and it gets us to environmentalism, and it gets us to a place where we start thinking about, like, the application of humane values across a wide number of domains. And I don't like the narrow definition of economic... And I, I sort of define a difference between a socialist or socialized economy, which is a change in the ownership of capital and the functioning of workplaces, and a socialist philosophy or a socialist approach to politics, which gets you to a lot of the other principles that today's socialists are fighting for. You know, the socialists who are in Black Lives Matter are often not, they're talking, when you talk about the prison system, when you talk about cops, you're not necessarily talking about changes to the workplace, but you are talking about something that flows from the same underlying set of values that cause people to be economic socialists. Well, and it flows from the way that you talk, the other thing that flows is the way that you talk about internationalism, which I think is different than the way that a lot of socialists or some amount of socialists have historically talked about socialism, right? Where there's a sort of more national version of socialism that is a kind of socialism. Not Nazism, but a a socialism (laughs) that's focused on worker ownership sort of within your own territory against all the rest of the world. And then what you advocate very strongly for in the book is a, a version of socialism that is committed to the first principle of every human being being of equal value. And so that you can't really kind of own the means of production in the United States or in Texas, and then just be like, well, fuck all to the rest of the world. I met uh, or I encountered on Facebook a guy once who declared himself a national socialist, but was very insistent that it was not Nazism. (laughs) He was was just a believer in both socialism and nations. And I tried to go, look, man, this term is not, (laughs) this is not getting redeemed. You're not going to turn this around. This is this is it's a fifty-year project to redeem that. <laughs> He's like, no, I'm not gonna let Nazis tell me what national. Yeah, you're bending socialism. to the Nazis, Nathan, by no. by allowing them to. He's take like, that's it. fake national socialism because they didn't care about socialism, or you know, what does he think nationalism is? Right. Well, that's, that's kind that's of the, the bigger thing. problem right. with not his socialism question. These yes. are these are the questions. Yeah, who who fits? Who belongs in his nation? I mean, that gets us to the fact that I think authentic socialist philosophy has to be anti-nationalist, which is that, like, nations are imaginary clusters of people that have either superior virtues or are distinct, but they're not really distinct, and because, um, and by virtue of their distinction, you can prioritize their interests, you can pursue the nation's self-interest. And I think a lot of American foreign policy is, a lot of the worst atrocities committed by the United States government are the result of a nationalistic philosophy that says that the people in our nation can be valued more highly than the people elsewhere. So the soldiers in Vietnam had this philosophy of like, well, your priority is saving American lives. And that means that like, even if it costs a thousand Vietnamese lives, you can do it to save one American life. And you see really how like ugly and genocidal the consequences of this are. Like if you just like the pursuit of self-interest, which sounds so, so neutral, can really be quite murderous if it means treating other people as ants and not looking at them 
as worthy of factoring into even the moral calculus of what you ought to do. And so real authentic socialists have always said, again, while there is a lower class, I'm in it. You know, <laughs> what you know, people in other countries are the same as people here. Their interests matter just as much. You are not allowed to prioritize some people by virtue of their membership in this imaginary group. You're not allowed to fence off, which is what we do in the United States. We we try and fence off our land of milk and honey and not let anyone else share it. And I think an authentic socialist says that that is a clear violation of the principle to from each according to their ability to each according to their need and a real socialist believe that the workers of the world ought to unite and so it's very disturbing when i see people who call themselves socialists suggesting that left openness towards greater immigration is in some way capitalist and that the real authentic socialist position is restrictionism in the name of american workers brianna renix and i wrote an article responding to a piece called the left case against open borders yeah that was the name yeah where we went through why we feel like if you are a real leftist, at least in the long term, you have to believe in a borderless world. That argument has never struck me as particularly sensible. So to break down the book, part one is kind of like, here's the things that you should be mad about. Here's the thing that socialists are mad about. And I think you should be mad about them too. These aren't sort of the parts as you've delineated them, but these are the parts in my mind. The second part is why socialism is the solution, like what socialism is, and why it's possibly the solution to some of those problems. In describing what socialism is, or sort of in a third part, you also respond to a lot of the common critiques of socialism. And I think you've done this on a couple of other interviews, but I wanted to get at one of them that I think is extremely common, which I know is actually your favorite, which is Venezuela, Venezuela, Venezuela. Venezuela. (laughs) They just repeat the word. It's compelling. Can you see Jack Ryan? Yeah, Jack Jack Ryan. Jim Halpert is killing people now because of Venezuela. I, I want to frame it a little bit more eloquently than they frame it. Which is... Like you'll put it in a sentence? <laughs> I'm going to put it in a sentence, which is throughout the book, you talk a lot about the actual successes of socialism and the beautiful principles. You know, you, you point to all of the, the wonderful socialists of the past that have had these sort of lovely philosophies that have not been murderous. You talk about building up the NHS you talk about the Labour Party, the earlier Labour Party before the war criminal Labour Party, Tony Blair. You talk about the sewer socialists in the United States yeah. and their form of municipal government and good municipal government. But, so here's the, here's the, here's the critique. Okay. All of those are either just sort of people with nice ideas or quite small projects. And what it does seem like is that in every country where socialists or people who are saying that they're socialists, people who seem to indicate that they're for a more socialized style of government, gain full state power. Yes. It ends up going very, very poorly. And looking through your book, you really only cite one country where that isn't the case. And that's Bolivia, which is only recently and is no longer ruled by Evo Morales. I guess my question is, how do you respond to the criticism that socialism is either too small and ineffective on one hand, or on the other end of the spectrum, wildly authoritarian. Sure. Well, I mean, the NHS is not a small project, right? The NHS Mm -hmm. bit was introduced by a socialist government. It socialized 
medicine in the United Kingdom to where basic medical care is free for everyone in Britain and has been since 1948. It is quite a stunning, and the people who did it were socialists. They did it in the name of socialism. So it's quite a stunning victory. And, you know, so, but then when you, you say, well, what about, you know, an entire socialized economy? You're just pointing at, like, things like, I don't know, they've just opened a municipal grocery store in Florida. Right. And all of those are lovely, right? right? Like, more safety bars. City-owned grocery store. Great. Libraries, great. But, like... Lauren's asking, how come there's no socialist empire? Why, you know, (laughs) giant socialist empire that's conquered the world and has remained socialist at the same time? I feel as if, like, one reason for this is because the sort of people who are going to take absolute power and try to remake the entire economy probably are not interested in doing the hard work of figuring out in small steps the difficult aspects of building a more democratic society. And so in Venezuela, you have to ask the question, what about Venezuela's descent into economic catastrophe was the result of the application of socialist principles? And the answer is, well, very little of it. Most of it was because of colossally bad economic decisions. Now, you can say, well, those economic decisions, some of them were made in the name of of the people. But, like, there is nothing socialist about mismanaging your economy. That's not something we believe in, because you shouldn't do things that actually cause serious damage to the people that you're trying to help. You could, that's consistent. It's consistent with socialism to believe that you should try and manage your economy well. They always, I mean, the reason I bring up Bolivia is because they always point to Venezuela and they don't point to Bolivia, even though Bolivia had a socialist government, and even though the government was deposed, ultimately, even the World Bank recognized that Bolivia was one of the fastest growing countries in the region, and that poverty had massively decreased. They built all these public gondolas, you know. They were really nice public gondolas. Nice public gondolas. You know, and it's tremendously successful. So if you're a serious person, you have to look at both of those cases and say, well, is it socialism here that is causing Venezuela's problems, or is it a particular set of decisions? And I cite the Wall Street Journal's chief Venezuela reporter, who said, well, there's nothing actually socialist here. This is just kleptocracy. This is just a bunch of really venal, selfish men who got into power and just served their own naked self-interest, claiming it was for the people and that it was socialism. So, But that would never happen under capitalism. <laughs> exactly. And to be fair, one time someone threw a mango at Nicolas Maduro and he gave her a house, I think. Did he really? <laughs> I think he did end up doing something for the mango Wait, person. Wait, is that a thing that works? Uh, apparently, like a house. <laughs> I think he thought it was very funny because the person was mad because there's a lot of homelessness. Woman who hit Venezuelan president with mango rewarded with house. I had no idea it was that easy. I gotta go, guys. I gotta, I gotta go buy some mangoes. She scrawled a note. A note on the mango. On the mango, and it like said on it, like like into the skin or like with a like piece of paper. I think it was pen on skin. Okay. She had scrawled on pen. And she said, if you can, call me. <laughs> this lady. I want to see how she handles breakups. That's and- like the mango version of sliding into the DFs. <laughs> <laughs> An opposition newspaper said, if for a mango they give you an apartment, then next time throw him 
the pineapple. (laughs) (laughs) It's a bad way to run an economy to just give houses (laughs) to the people who happen to throw fruit at your head. And it also creates what we call perverse incentives. (laughs) (laughs) So, yes. The last sort of hard question that I want to ask you is, you do a very good job in the book of being introspective and you know sort of self-critical and critical of different socialist tendencies and I, and I do think that that actually flows naturally from the type of socialism you're describing which is an anti-hierarchical sort of libertarian socialism that isn't really obsessed with sort of being a marxist or being a stalinist or being a leninist is sort of okay we, we want to do these good things for people and and have a more egalitarian world but even in that i think there's a risk that we can get a little bit too myopic or a little bit too you know everything proves our point but it does of course it does of course it does but i guess my question is you know we're sitting here doing this interview on the back end of a pretty harsh loss for labor in the uk (sighs) which i know is the question that sucks and and no one wants but look i think there's there's a lot of explanations right you could talk about the bullshit anti-Semitism claims that really drove a lot of people away from Corbyn. You can talk about how Brexit kind of muddied up the waters. And I think that those things are true. Like, those are true. But I do, there is a tendency, for sort of across political movements, but I'm going to frame it the way that the left does, of, yes, that victory was because of socialism, or no, that loss wasn't because the right wing is so powerful, or capital is so powerful, they didn't do socialism properly, or you know, leftists always lose and part of the loss, like part of being a leftist is the struggle. And like, I I guess to someone who's asking the question, okay, well, what if I, what if I want to win? And I see these, some losses and I think, oh, well, this thing seems to be losing. Like, how do you, how do we deal with that? Right. Because what is often said by our critics is they're looking for a way to say, well, people have been offered the thing that you're offering them and they've rejected it. And so, you know, one of our core arguments is always, well, if people just had the opportunity to experience the kind of thing that we are proposing, if they just knew what it was like to have socialized medicine or insurance. Right, which is why, like, people love the NHS and don't want to get rid of it, and which I think is a strong point in favor. But, like, for example, if Bernie Sanders loses, how do we explain that? This is the big fear, right? And and uh, this was what was said after Abdul El-Sayed lost in Michigan, even though he didn't call himself a socialist. Well, you know, left politics didn't win. They weren't practical. And, of course, Abdul would say, well, also, there was a giant amount of money being spent to crush me. Which is true. Which is true. Like, all of the explanations are not untrue. And of course, you know, with Corbyn, right, giant amount of money mobilized to crush him. And then they say, aha, people rejected the left. And you go, they didn't reject the left. You rejected the left. And then you convinced a bunch of other people to reject it. But at the same time, it does sound a little bit like excuse making every time you say it, where you say, well, you know, if if our whole argument is, well, we just got to give people the opportunity and then they vote and then they vote no. <laughs> and then, And then you go, well, that was external forces. I think the thing that we have to do is we have to take seriously the question and the criticism that is made, which is, are you trying to impose a set of values that are not widely held on people? Are you kind of depending on a false consciousness theory that might be false, like the real nagging self-doubt that afflicts some of us is, well, what if we're just crazy? 
Like, what if most people are actually... Because we're always going, like, speaking in the name of the people and the 99% and the, well, the workers. And then you go, well, what if they just don't... What if nobody agrees? <laughs> what if you just got a weird idiosyncratic viewpoint? I had a really disturbing conversation with one of my clients when I was practicing criminal defense law, where, you know, we, we were having conversations about sort of the prison system and many of my other clients sort of, you know, don't like the prison system. Obviously, they've been inside it for a long time. And this this client had been in for a very long time. And I was like, oh, yeah, you know, I, I don't think the prison system should exist. And he was like, are you kidding me? Do you know some of the people that are in there? They definitely should be in there. And I think that there are reasons why he said that, and I think that there are responses, but it's also a little bit bullshit for me to tell someone who is currently in jail that he doesn't understand how jail works, and I actually understand it better. And so th- there is this sort of like, there is this fear for me of like, actually, this this sort of double consciousness craziness fear. I think the question is, does he have answers to the question like, yeah, but why do we get to the point where people are like that? You know, why is it necessary to have, I mean, do you have proof that human nature requires it? No, you don't have proof. We have assertions. We often have assertions that human nature requires it. And so the way that I respond to this is, well, okay, but wait, when we actually ask people the questions, like, do you think that people should not have to think about money in regard to their healthcare, right? You have conversations with people where you, you start to get past, like, I mean, in England, it was all about Corbyn. They hell hated Corbyn. And the question is, do they hate left policies? Do they hate the left aspiration? And when you poll the actual things that were being campaigned on, the answer was no. People liked the idea. They wanted to expand social spending. They wanted to end austerity. They hated austerity. They wanted strong labor protections. They wanted all of the things that we talk about. But they hated Corbyn. And you say, well, but Corbyn stands for all those things. And then it it becomes, well, maybe he didn't campaign well, and maybe he didn't, uh, which I I don't know that he did. He didn't perform well in the debate. Maybe, you know, there was a smear campaign, but also, you know, maybe it's a failure of our strategy. I think one thing that we do need to accept is that a left program doesn't sell itself. It's not just that, like, by having the the good ideas, you're going to succeed. Uh, You can fail because you didn't show it to people well. I mean, I ask myself all the time, is the socialist vision of a just world the right one? Or is it just the one that I happen to prefer because I have, like, a weird utopia in my head? And the fact is, though, that I think it is the right one, because the more people I talk to about it, you bring people around, and they see that actually, like, humane values are good, and we um, and many of us feel them very deeply. And also, like, you can't escape it. I can't, like, reconcile myself. Again, this is like, this for the socialists are the ones who can't reconcile themselves to the existence of prisons. Like, you can't tell me that we have to have them, because I can't live in comfort. I can't ever acquiesce to the necessity of permanent cruelty. That seems to me like something that even if like I was the only one in the society who believed it, I would have to spend my whole time trying to persuade everyone else to come over to my side. What have you liked about writing this book? Or what have you disliked? I don't like writing. You don't. You said, to, okay, you, today you say you don't like politics, and now you say you don't like writing. Seems like you're you're a little bit of a masochist because you write a lot and you do a lot of politics. (laughs) Well, I should I should clarify. I don't like this writing. I want to write little children's books. 
I want to write, you know, fun stuff. Political writing, though, feels to me like something that is an unfortunate necessity. It's like I want to get to the point where we live in a society where this isn't necessary. I will say, for those that want to buy the book, though, or want to be encouraged to buy the book, this is the least dry political or like yeah, it, there's exactly. a lot of it's delightful there's yeah. a lot of delight humor yeah. there's a, a section about seahorses the, the picture of a seahorse there's a picture of a seahorse on page 70 of a seahorse there's a lot of verve and wit and humorous anecdotes and images long list of possible things to go in the utopia yeah which was user generated which i really i really enjoyed crowdsourced utopia no i mean i mean that kind of seriously in the sense that like i feel frustrated by the fact that like you know i've I've read about really terrible things in this right trying to make the reality of nuclear warfare comprehensible and feel urgent and distressing and trying to make like the the process of climate change, which is kind of a frog in boiling water thing, where you look around you and you're like, wait, was that small change? Was that climate change? And it might be or it might not be, but we know that we're going step by step by step um, and trying to like go like, well, before the water's boiling, you have to like act as if it is already. That's to me like not the, the writing that I ultimately wish that I was doing necessarily, but it is what has to be done right now. And there is pleasure. I mean, I get great pleasure from making current affairs and I get got some pleasure from at least the satisfaction of completing this book. And certainly all the people that I get to meet going around talking about this book, that's just delightful. But I think any real clear-eyed person has to say it would be nicer if we weren't having to, to do this right now. Yeah, and, and it's good that you bring up climate change because that is the big stressor and, and it's it's mentioned a lot in the book. But that is that's kind of the, the big problem is that this is you know, there have been socialist movements before and they've won some victories and had some defeats and you know, and it, and it's, it's this iterative process fine. But we have a ticking clock now and it does not seem possible to defeat climate change without socialism. So what are we gonna that's do? That's also that? the thing that worries me though, right? Because <laughs> like I think we talk about socialist struggles as like a very long term thing. Like you lose, you lose, you lose, you win, you lose, you lose, you lose, you win. You know, is sort of like the leftist thing. Like the struggle continues is a is a you know classic leftist slogan. And what if you don't have time? <laughs> what if you don't have time for the struggle to continue? I don't know that there's a good answer to that. So I, I don't mean to answer the answer the the I'm big not question. To. <laughs> yeah, because climate change is terrifying. I do want to pick up on something that you were saying about writing the book, though. You know, it's I, it was sort of a soft question, but in the, in a sense, I think it gets at one of the things about the type of socialism that you're talking about, which is one of the common critiques of socialism is that it diminishes the individual and. The way that you describe socialism in this book is the exact opposite. And I think that's sort of actually a point that you were kind of hitting around even in discussing what you would like to do in the future. Like once there is socialism, you'll get to do the thing that actualizes your desire, which is make lovely children's books. And I wanted to know if you could flesh that out a little bit. Well, what could more elevate the importance of each individual person than the Debs perspective and the Ursula Le Guin Omelas perspective that says that like every single person matters. So it doesn't matter 
if like the collective is doing better, right? Which is when you see these aggregated statistics about well GDP is going up and the collective is doing great, but you know then you break down the statistics into individuals because we don't live as a statistical aggregate, we live as individuals. And when you look at that, it turns out that some people are doing horribly and some people are doing just fantastically well and that the arrow consists largely of the people who are doing fantastically well and their lives are amazing. The socialists are, are the ones who, as I say, you know, pay attention to every single life and, you know, say, well, there's a soul in prison, I'm not free. The other thing, the funny thing, and, and one of our contributors, Sam Miller McDonald, has written a great article called Capitalism is Collectivist. And his point is that if you look at the American corporation, it is like Maoism. It is all individuals, all of us serve the entity, the big entity, and the interests of the entity are what matters. There's a and sex joke in there. Walmart is <laughs> the entity. And so you do the Walmart cheer, which Walmart workers do. I mean, it's, it just goes, give me a W, give me that. It, you know, they make the workers do it before the shift to get excited. And then they, they smile through their pain. What could be more collectivist than an Amazon warehouse? Once upon a time when I worked for an arm of the Disney empire, when we get emails from Bob Iger, it would, it would you know, to the whole company. And he would, he would say, dear fellow employee... <laughs> oh fucking hell. and then just like comrade i mean it's like it's actually like really funny that he you know could get away with saying that i forget what bezos says bezos uh, is an associate associate or right yeah i yeah. think it's associate you're an associate and so is jeff bezos they say that this is the most equal company because everyone has the same title not the yeah. same amount of money <laughs> no <laughs> just the same title which is like how a dictator calls himself like colonel instead of like general because the colonel colonel gaddafi he was only colonel gaddafi right jeff bezos is you know Bezos is Colonel Gaddafi. Like, you know, it's it's the it's <laughs> like you, you heard it here first. <laughs> you, but that's the kind of structure that these things have, right? I mean, Elizabeth Anderson's private government is great because it talks about like, well, let's actually analyze the corporation through political theory. And we realize that it's a it's a collectivist dictatorship. She calls them communist dictatorships. Because, you know, they it, within a corporation, there is no free market, which is an interesting feature of, of, of corporations. Other than that Sears example that you gave. This, uh, yeah, well, there's a great book, crazy. The People's Republic of Walmart, that is about how within corporations, there are no markets. And when Sears tried to, like, have all the workers compete instead of operate in the interests of the collective, the whole thing fell apart because they all undermined each other. Now, we believe in the collective good. I mean, I've written an, an article called, like, We Need to Work for the Collective, and one reason is is that like thinking about everyone as a whole helps us get out of prisoners' dilemmas, where like if we just think about our individual self-interest and we don't think about other people's self-interest, we do end up undermining each other, where if we worked for a sense of the collective good, we would all be better off. And that's one reason that corporations are collectivist in a certain way, is that they understand that when we all work for the collective good, well, it doesn't make us all better off. But in the aggregate, it makes us better off. And then the question is, do you distribute the fruits of that prosperity equally? Which they don't at Walmart. You have to be kind of collectivist and kind of individualist, but the idea that socialists are just all about like this this thing called society and they don't actually care about you as a person is completely wrong because like everything, for example, everything Bernie Sanders is doing on the campaign trail right now is talking about people's individual stories and the way that the political and economic system shapes their lived reality as a person and the way they as individuals are being completely overlooked. 
So before we close out, one of my favorite things about the way that you end the book, there's a lot of things that I like in the book, including a mention of Blueprints for Sparkling Tomorrow. Which they should buy with this book. Which they should buy. It's a companion. The companion. Or Nimney and Nathan Robinson's Blueprints for Sparkling Tomorrow, Thoughts on Reclaiming the American Dream. One of my favorite things about the, the end of the book is you do a thing that organizers do at meetings, right? Where you talk about all the stuff and then you have a call to action. And then you sort of say, look... You're like reading this was great, but there's some things that you should do. If you could end by just giving some people either some of the things from the book or, you know, some new things that you've thought of, of either, you know, groups they can join or things that they should probably do as good next steps to be on this journey towards socialism, what would you leave people with? Unionize your workplace. Join the DSA. Subscribe to Current Affairs. <laughs> I mean, I hesitate to offer. Everyone's looking for, well... As blueprints for a sparkling tomorrow. Everyone is looking for a path. You know, it's 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 hard. And one of the things that that I feel felt like really caused the failure of the Occupy movement, which was in many ways very inspiring, was the fact that people didn't know what to do. They got to the park and they were like, "Well, we've planted our flag here. We're making our our stand, making our protest. But what do we do? How do you affect change?" And for a long time, it wasn't very clear. You know, you, what do you, you vote for Democrats? I mean, that's what you do. <laughs> what, do you, what organization do you join? I mean, what is there? Many of the unions that you could join actually are quite undemocratic or, you know, feel kind of useless. It's actually very difficult to utilize your workplace. I mean, I like the DSA because I think they're, they're offering one of the most plausible answers to that, which is that they do a lot of different things. And, and part of it is electoral, but part of it is like, well organizing tenants unions part of it is encouraging and trying to organize the workplaces part of it is ballot initiatives and and it's it's very flexible it's an organization that is that says well there's no one answer to how you how you advance the socialist cause you have to look for opportunities and then you have to organize in different ways to meet those opportunities and so they've got like in Houston they've got a criminal court judge and that judge is and they're working to eliminate cash bail which is they nearly done you know in pennsylvania they got a housing court judge and he's reducing evictions you know in north dakota they've got a native state legislator who's working on like the failure to investigate the disappearances of native women you know lots of lots of different approaches you take on amazon in new york and and seattle the answer is find an organization that you feel like is democratic enough for you to feel like you matter in it and you're not just going to meetings and doing what you're told and that feels like it's not doing cargo cult politics that just kind of look like political action but aren't political action and fortunately there are the great thing about young socialists is that they get this they're very concerned with strategy and with power partially because bernie sanders has demonstrated in a real real way how you fight which is that you set out an agenda you think about what are the what are the things that are winnable and bernie sanders in 2016 thought well medicare for all free college these are things we can mobilize people around these are things we can persuade people to join us on these are things that will make a difference these are things that like the existing structure of political opportunity might have room for so part of it is just learning to think strategically and think what are the goals what are the big broad utopian goals what in the existing world that we have right now feels feasible as a next stage? You can be a revolutionary socialist, but the revolutionary socialists have to have a plan just like reformist socialists. They have to have like a plausible theory of how you overthrow power and how you get there. You gotta have a place to put the heads after the guillotine. You gotta have a strategy. 
Where are you going to get the spikes? Where are you going to put the spikes up? Maximize the visibility of the heads on spikes so that the right people are intimidated, right? That's why you got to put them outside Wall Street. Power concedes nothing without a spike, they say. (laughs) Once you have Mike Bloomberg's disembodied head looking up at the traders on Wall Street (laughs) on a spike, they're going to, I think they're going to start listening to the left agenda. Yeah, I got to go, guys. I have something really important to do right now. In other news, Michael Bloomberg. I'm not encouraging. (laughs) Or listen, I'm just giving as a theoretical example, hypothetical, just, you know, the DSA convention was very inspiring over the summer because they actually know what they're doing. Yeah, you almost convinced me to join after that. But Oren is anti-organization. I know. I'm trying to get over it. Incorrigible (laughs) anarchist. All right. Well, thank you for sitting down with us, author Nathan Jay Robinson, you've just written a new book, Why You Should Be a Socialist. It's available at local bookstores everywhere. This has been thought for your thoughts. <laughs> Thank you, Terry. It's a privilege. It's a privilege to be yeah. on fresh air, which I never thought I'd. <laughs> this has been Current Affairs. I'm Oren Nimney. I'm Letta Gold. Stay tuned for an impassioned uh, call to you know donate, and uh, you'll get a tote bag. Yes. <laughs> Did you call it a thought for your thoughts? Is that the show? <laughs> That's that the Parks and Rec. The Parks oh, and Rec that? fake oh, okay. NPR, yeah. <laughs> yes, please. Our program is uh, made by viewers like you. If you donate, you'll be sure to get a current affairs tote bag. We don't have tote bags. We really should, though. Production has been suspended. <laughs> <laughs> no, please subscribe. Well, if you're listening to this, you might already subscribe, but get your friends to subscribe. Don't just mobilize. Organize your friends to join the bird feed. Buy the book. Buy the magazine. Buy copies of the book for all of the people you think will hate it the most. That's what I tell people to do. Think of the person who would hate it the most, as long as they won't kill you. Don't get killed. Hopefully they'll read it. I read this book as someone coming from the left, and I thought it was a good book. I think it can help you organize your thoughts and articulate them better. But also, yeah, give it as a gift to an annoying right-wing uncle or an apathetic partner. Or, well, I mean, they might break up with you after that, but, you Yeah, know. but, like, maybe you shouldn't be dating somebody that apathetic. Look, if you organize them into the socialist struggle and all you lost was a relationship in the process, maybe it was worth it. <laughs> Clock's ticking. <laughs> <laughs> we're all gonna burn. This has been the bird. <laughs> we're gonna win! We're gonna win! What I keep telling people is, we're gonna turn the ship around. I was like, yeah, we hit the iceberg, the holes are filling with water. We're gonna turn the ship around. It worked for the Titanic, it can work for us. Don't say that. <laughs> and turn it around. <laughs> we really might. All right. Thank you all. <laughs> <laughs>